Chapter Thirteen of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Daly. Chapter Thirteen. After two years of silence, I found it no easy matter to carry on with my brother a sustained conversation. So weak were my vocal cords from lack of use that every few minutes I must either rest or whisper, and upon pursing my lips I found myself unable to whistle, notwithstanding the popular belief, drawn from vague memories of small boyhood, that this art is instinctive. Those who all their lives have talked at will cannot possibly appreciate the enjoyment I found in using my regained power of speech. Reluctantly, I returned to the ward, but not until my brother had left for home, laden with so much of my conversation that it took most of his leisure for the next two days to tell the family what I had said in two hours. During the first few hours I seemed virtually normal. I had none of the delusions which had previously oppressed me, nor had I yet developed any of the expansive ideas or delusions of grandeur which soon began to crowd in upon me. So normal did I appear while talking to my brother that he thought I should be able to return home in a few weeks, and, needless to say, I agreed with him. But the pendulum, as it were, had swung too far. The human brain is too complex a mechanism to admit of any such complete readjustment in an instant. It is said to be composed of several million cells, and that fact granted, it seems safe to say that every day, perhaps every hour, Hundreds of thousands of the cells of my brain were now being brought into a state of renewed activity. Comparatively sane and able to recognize the important truths of life, I was yet insane as to many of its practical details. Judgment being king of the realm of thought, it was not surprising that my judgment failed often to decide correctly the many questions presented to it by its abnormally communicative subjects. At first I seemed to live a second childhood. I did with delight many things which I had first learned to do as a child, the more so as it had been necessary for me to learn again, to eat and walk, and now to talk. I had much lost time to make up, and for a while my sole ambition seemed to be to utter as many thousand words a day as possible. My fellow patients, who for fourteen months had seen me walk about in silence, a silence so profound and inexorable that I would seldom heed their friendly salutations, were naturally surprised to see me in my new mood of unrestrained loquacity and irrepressible good humor. In short, I had come into that abnormal condition which is known to psychiatrists as elation. For several weeks I believe I did not sleep more than two or three hours a night. Such was my state of elation, however, that all signs of fatigue were entirely absent, and the sustained and abnormal mental and physical activity in which I then indulged has left on my memory no other than a series of very pleasant impressions. Though based on fancy, the delights of some forms of mental disorder are real. Few, if any, sane persons would care to test the matter at so great a price, but those familiar with the letters of Charles Lamb must know that Lamb himself underwent treatment for mental disease. 
In a letter to Coleridge, dated June 10, 1796, he says, At some future time I will amuse you with an account as full as my memory will permit of the strange turns my frenzy took. I look back upon it at times with a gloomy kind of envy, for while it lasted I had many, many hours of pure happiness. Dream not, Coleridge, of having tasted all the grandeur and wildness of fancy till you have gone mad. All now seems to me vapid, comparatively so. As for me, the very first night vast but vague humanitarian projects began joyously to shape themselves in my mind. My garden of thought seemed filled with flowers which might properly be likened to the quick-blowing night-blooming cereus, that delusion of grandeur of all flowering plants that thinks itself prodigal enough if it but unmask its beauty to the moon. Few of my bold fancies, however, were of so fugitive and chaste a splendor. The religious instinct is found in primitive man. It is not strange, therefore, that at this time the religious side of my nature was the first to display compelling activity. Whether or not this was due to my rescue from a living death and my immediate appreciation of God's goodness, both to me and to those faithful relatives who had done all the praying during the preceding two years, this I cannot say. But the fact stands out that whereas I had, while depressed, attached a sinister significance to everything done or said in my presence, I now interpreted the most trifling incidents as messages from God. The day after this transition I attended church. It was the first service in over two years which I had not attended against my will. The reading of a psalm, the forty-fifth, made a lasting impression upon me, and the interpretation which I placed upon it furnishes the key to my attitude during the first week's of elation. It seemed to me a direct message from heaven. The minister began, My heart is inditing a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Whose heart but mine? And the things indicted, what were they but the humanitarian projects which had blossomed in my garden of thoughts overnight? When, a few days later, I found myself writing very long letters with unwanted facility, I became convinced that my tongue was to prove itself the pen of a ready writer. Indeed, to those prophetic words I trace the inception of an irresistible desire, of which this book is the first fruit. Thou art fairer than the children of men, grace is poured into thy lips, was the verse next read, by myself and the congregation, to which the minister responded, Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Surely I have been selected as the instrument wherewith great reform shall be effected, was my thought. All is grist that comes to the mill of a mind in elation. Then even divine encomiums seem not undeserved. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, a command to fight, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, replied the minister. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things, was another response. 
that I could speak the truth I knew. Meekness I could not associate with myself, except that during the preceding two years I had suffered many indignities without open resentment, that my right hand with a pen should teach me terrible things, how to fight for reform, I firmly believed. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee, quoth the minister. Yes, my tongue could be sharp as an arrow, and I should be able to stand up against those who should stand in the way of reform. Again, thou lovest righteousness and hateth wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The first sentence I did not apply to myself. But being then, as I supposed, a man restored to himself, it was easy to feel that I had been anointed with the oil of gladness above my fellows. Oil of gladness is, in truth, an apt phrase wherewith to describe elation. The last two verses of the psalm corroborated the messages found in the preceding verses. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Thus the minister. Therefore shall the people praise thee for ever and ever was the response I read. That spelled immortal fame for me, but only on condition that I should carry to a successful conclusion the mission of reform, an obligation placed upon me by God when he restored my reason. When I sat out upon a career of reform, I was impelled to do so by motives in part like those which seem to have possessed Don Quixote when he set forth, as Cervantes says, with the intention of righting every kind of wrong, and exposing himself to peril and danger, from which, in the issue, he would obtain eternal renown and fame. In likening myself to Cervantes' mad hero, my purpose is quite other than to push myself within the charmed circle of the chivalrous. What I wish to do is to make plain that a man abnormally elated may be swayed irresistibly by his best instincts, and that while under the spell of an exaltation, idealistic in degree, he may not only be willing, but eager to assume risks and endure hardships which under normal conditions he would assume reluctantly, if at all. In justice to myself, however, I may remark that my plans for reform have never assumed quixotic and therefore impracticable proportions. At no time have I gone a-tilting at windmills. A pen rather than a lance has been my weapon of offence and defence. For with its point I have felt sure that I should one day prick the civic consciousness into a compassionate activity, and thus bring into a neglected field earnest men and women who should act as champions for those afflicted thousands least able to fight for themselves. End of chapter 13